Damodaraya Namaha Chapter 5 Bondage of the Boundless O Damodara, thou abode of good qualities, Govinda, with a beautiful lotus-like face, do thou churn the sea of mortality with the Mandara mountain and bestow on me a little of that immortal nectar. One day, Yashoda got up early in order to assist the maids in churning curds. She left the sleeping Krishna and tiptoed out of the room so as to boil the milk and churn the curd before he woke up. Unfortunately, he woke up soon after and was quite annoyed to find her missing. Even though he was about three years old, according to the custom, he had not yet been weaned, and it was his usual habit to have a good feast as soon as he got up. He shouted for his mother, but the noise made by the wooden churn, as well as the fact that she was singing songs about him, drowned his baby voice. By now he was thoroughly disgruntled and decided to go down and investigate. Ah, there she is, busy churning curd, and she should be feeding me, he thought, as he spied her from the door. Running to her, he caught hold of the churning rod and put a stop to the whole operation. She turned to look at him, and her eyes melted with love, and her breath started to flow out of their own accord. He was such an enchanting sight. His bunch of curls were sprouting from the top of his head, where she had tied it the previous evening, with a single peacock feather stuck in the middle. His eyes were smudged with collyrium due to the tears he had shed, and even now one tear was precariously balanced on his lower lip lids, wondering whether to fall or not, loath to leave those lovely eyes. His lips were pink, with a full lower lip thrust out in a delicious pout. She caught him to her in a tight embrace and loosened her upper garment and started to feed him. Both mother and son were thoroughly enjoying this interlude, he sucking with gusto and she watching with great tenderness, when suddenly she heard the hissing noise of the milk boiling over that she had kept in the fire. Placing the child down on the floor, she ran to rescue the milk. Krishna was furious. His eyes became red and his lips trembled. It was bad enough to have been deprived of his pleasure in the morning, but this was the very limit. To be dumped like a sack of potatoes when he had not finished drinking his fill. He'd show her. He took up the heavy wooden churn and brought it down with a bang on the mud pot containing curd which he had been churning. The buttermilk gushed out with a gurgle, with a blob of butter in the middle. With make-believe tears in his eyes, he looked aghast at what he had done. Deciding that discretion was the better part of valor, he hurriedly trotted off on his chubby legs. At the door, he turned and looked back. The blob of butter looked too inviting. 
Moreover, he was still hungry. He trotted back and rescued the butter and ran to the veranda where there was a big rice-husking motor. Seating himself precariously on top of this, he proceeded to enjoy his stolen feast, throwing a few lumps to the kittens now and again. Yashoda returned after rescuing the milk and saw the mess he had made on the floor. But of the child there was no sign. She tiptoed out and saw him sitting on the motor, glancing here and there with the pretended fear of discovery written large in his eyes. She approached him slowly from behind. Turning round, he caught sight of her and jumped down and ran away as if in fear. She gave chase to him, who cannot be caught, even in the mind of a meditating yogi, filled with austerity, crying and rubbing his eyes with buttery fingers, and looking back anxiously at his mother, who was slowly catching up with him, he ran and hid behind the motor. When she saw his fear, she threw away the stick she had been carrying, and decided to tie him to the motor. Quickly she returned with the longest and strongest piece of rope that she could find. Creeping up to the stone, she suddenly threw it over him and said, Now I'm going to tie you up. At these words, a tuft of curls bobbed up over the stone, followed by two anxious eyes, one tiny nose, and a pair of buttery lips ending in a determined chin which lifted itself up and rested on top of the stone. I am going to tie you up, she repeated, hardening her heart against a plea in his enchanting look. His eyes looked down, but was there a mocking gleam in them? He was the unmanifest supreme, sporting as a human child, whom this gopi took to be her own son and tried to fasten to the motor. Determinedly, she took the rope round his middle and found it was short by two fingers. So she attached another rope and wound it twice round him and again found it short by two fingers. She attached another rope with the same result. Thus, she exhausted all the rope in the house and still there was a shortage of two inches to complete the round. The other gopis who had come to watch the fun now began to laugh at Yashoda's predicament. As for her, she could not imagine what the matter was. She was still to learn the folly of trying to bind the one who was boundless. The mocking gleam was more pronounced and the gopis started tittering amongst themselves and whispering, she didn't believe us when we told her, and see, now she herself is suffering. The poor mother was desperate. She cast an imploring look at her little son, seeing the pathetic state of his perspiring mother with disheveled hair and flowers falling from it. Krishna felt pity and allowed himself to be bound. Not even the gods could attain as much grace from him as he showed to this gopi, his mother, for the rope of love is the only cord capable of binding the boundless.
Just to stay there, you naughty boy, she said sternly, as she bound him with ease and hoped to convince the others that she was fully capable of punishing the little rogue. Everyone drifted away, leaving him alone. His mother went inside after admonishing him once more. Luckily, he had thought of hiding some of the butter in the hole in the middle of the mortar. He took it out and had a small field, but soon he became quite bored. What was he to do now, since he had given an unspoken promise to his mother to remain tied? Suddenly he spied a pair of gigantic trees in the distance. They were growing very close to each other. In fact, between them there was such a small gap that only a very small boy like him could manage to squeeze through. He was struck with a desire to put his theory to the test. Now was as good a time as many as any. He set off at a brisk trot on his chubby legs, followed by a grumbling, rumbling, pounding stone. In all its life, it had never been treated so ignominiously. It hardly befitted a stone of its dignity to be bouncing up and down in the wake of a small boy like this. Krishna had reached the trees and passed with ease through the gap between them, thereby proving his point. But the poor stone got well and truly stuck. Krishna looked back and saw the impediment. One, two, three, he said, and gave a slight tug. Both the trees crashed to the ground with a terrible rending noise. In their place stood two handsome celestials. They were the sons of Kubera, the god of wealth, and were known as Nala Kubera and Manigriva. They had been cursed by the sage Narada in order to curb their pride, arising out of the intoxication of wealth. The spell could only be lifted by the touch of the Lord, who had embarked on this particular game in order to fulfill the words of his devotee, Narada. With folded palms, they bowed low and extolled him. Bless us, O Lord, for we are the servants of thy devotee, Narada. It was by his blessing that we have this opportunity to see thee. In the future, may our words be always devoted to the narration of thy excellences. May our ears be always listening to the accounts of thy deeds. May our hands be ever engaged in performing work for thy sake. May our minds ever rest in constant remembrance of thy feet. May our heads always remain bowed in reverence before thy temple, which is the whole universe. Hearing this, the Lord is pleased and blessed them and sent them back to their abode in the Himalayas. The celestials rained flowers on him and addressed him with a new appellation, Damodara, the one with the rope round his waist. Hearing the terrific sound of the falling trees, Nanda and the other Gopalas rushed to the place to find Krishna sitting happily on the motor, eating the small black berries from the tree. Nanda untied him, who is capable of liberating all souls. Yashoda anxiously inspected him for bruises, 
but could find none. Everyone commented on the miraculous way in which this child managed to escape from danger. Another day when Krishna was toddling through the streets on another of his nefarious errands, he saw an old lady laboriously carrying a basket of fruit which he had managed to collect from the forest. Give me some, give me some, he lisped, running to her and tugging at her side. She looked at that cherubic face and was lost. I generally sell my fruits in exchange for grain, but for you I'll give my whole hoard free, she said. Krishna, the bestower of the fruits of action to all, refused to take anything free. My father is very rich. He has plenty of grain. Come with me and I'll give you as much as you wish, she said. So saying, he darted off like a blue arrow and the old lady labored after him. This way, that way, she saw flashes of blue fire and soon came to his house. By this time, Krishna had darted inside, imperiously calling his mother to get the grain. But Yashoda had gone for a visit. The house seemed deserted. What was he to do? Going inside, he grabbed as much grain as his little hands could hold, and with the greatest concentration, he walked with bated breath, gazing fixedly at his hands so that not even a single grain would fall. But despite his best efforts, all down the passage, the grain slipped through his baby fingers, so that when he emptied into her basket, with a sigh of relief, it was doubtful whether there were more than five or six grains altogether. The child beamed with joy at his own efforts and looked happily at the old lady. She smiled tenderly at him and wiped the beads of perspiration from his forehead with her torn garment. Then she sat down on the steps and made him sit in her lap. She took a fistful of berries from the basket and filled his cup palms. Two more were needed to fill them to the brim. She turned to search for two big berries to place on top and when she looked around his hands were empty. Once more she filled them, and once more the same thing happened. This kept repeating till the last berry was in his mouth, and the basket emptied. Are you satisfied now, my precious? she inquired anxiously. He nodded his head vigorously, so that the bunch of curls bounced up and down. He couldn't speak, for his mouth was too full. Though she had got only a few grains, in return for her entire store of fruit, the old lady's heart was filled with unspeakable joy. Lifting the empty basket onto her head, she walked forward with a lilt. She had hardly gone a few steps when she felt a great weight on her head, and putting down the basket, she found that it was filled with precious gems as big as the fruits. They sparkled in the sun, glistening and gleaming, some black like Krishna's eyes, winking at her in mischief, some blue like his body, as he darted before her like a flame, some pink like his palms, upturned to receive the fruits. Everywhere, everywhere, her poor old eyes were dazzled 
by the colors and memories they produced. She turned back for one more glimpse of him. Nothing could she see, but she did not mind, for inside her heart his form shone forever. Who can explain the leela of this divine being who played these pranks to the delight of the simple cowherds of Gokula? Assuming the role of a village child, he sang and danced at the command of the gopis, as if he was some sort of doll. He fetched and carried for them, and played and pranced for them, and ran to do their bidding, in order to show that he was one who would subordinate himself to fulfill even the slightest wish of his devotees. Nanta and the other elders among the Gopalas now started to feel alarmed at all the extraordinary happenings in their settlement and the number of miraculous escapes this child seemed to be having. They had a conference in order to decide what best could be done. An old man called Upananda declared that there was some evil spirit in that place and God alone had protected their child and kept him from harm. He suggested that it would be better to shift to a new place before any further calamity took place. The nearby forest of Vrindavan was noted for its beauty and had plenty of virgin pasture for the cows. This was an important point for them since they depended on their cows for their livelihood. All of them readily agreed to make the move and they got their carts ready and started on the trek. The old men, women, children and the possessions were loaded onto the carts and the cavalcade set forth with the cows marching in front, the carts following and the men and priests behind carrying bows in their hands. How picturesque was the way and how lovely the scene. The calves lowed softly as they ran to keep up with their mothers. The bells and the horns of the bulls tinkled merrily, keeping time with the bells and the wheels of the carts. The Gopalas blew their horns and trumpets, and the gobies sitting in the carts sang lyrics about the pranks of their beloved Krishna. By Rama and Krishna, were seated on a brand new cart on the laps of their mothers, and neither Yashoda nor Rohini felt the tediousness of the journey, listening to their prattle. They jolted along in the cards till the sun set in the west, and they reached the outskirts of Vrindavan, which was bathed in the soft glow of the setting sun, with the prominent landmark of the Govardhan Hill looming in the background. The river Kalindi, like a beautiful damsel, rushing with delight as if to meet her lover, and the abundance of flowering trees and bushes, drenching the air with perfume. They sat for some time, soaking in the charms of their first night in the forest of Vrindavan. Fortunate indeed was this place, where every tree and every blade of grass must have been some great sage in order to have had the good fortune to feel the divine feet of the Lord dancing over them, his lotus petal body brushing them, 
and his perfume breath invigorating them. Since they were a nomadic tribe, used to constant moves, the Gopalas cleared the land and set up their dwelling places in no time. Small boys up to the age of five were allowed to tend the calves. Krishna begged his mother to be allowed to go with them. Reluctantly she agreed, for she could not bear to be parted from him. Her heart yearned after him, and her eyes followed him until he was no more than a small blue dot in the distance, with the morning sun creating a halo round his head, due to the dust raised by the hooves of the calves. All the boys carried toys with them. Once they reached a grassy plain, they would allow the calves to graze, while they amused themselves. Sometimes they played on the flute, sometimes with the catapults, sometimes with balls, and sometimes with masks in mock bullfights, bellowing like bulls and charging at each other. Thus, he played with those fortunate Gopanas like an ordinary child. But while they were leading the idyllic existence in the forest, back in Mathura, Kamsa was in a fever of impatience. The three he had sent to Gokula had never returned, so he strongly suspected that his enemy was hiding in the cowherd settlement, and, and he called his assistants and sent them to kill the boy Krishna, whom he suspected to be none other than his sister's son. One day, while Krishna was standing and playing the flute, he spied a calf behaving in an extraordinary manner. It was one of Kamsa's assassins, were taken on a calf's form, in which guise he hoped to remain unnoticed. But the divine intelligence could never be baffled, and Krishna caught hold of his hind legs and tail together, and whirled him around and round, and hurled him to the top of a tree. As the huge carcass of the demon came hurtling down, it brought down a number of fruits and flowers. Krishna continued his interrupted flute playing while the other boys rushed to inspect what was happening. They saw the flowers and fruit falling all around him and asked, What happened, Krishna? From where have all these flowers and fruits come? Krishna told them the story and showed them the body of the dead demon. One day they went to the lake so that the calves could drink. While they were drinking the crystal clear waters of the lake, the boys were terrified to see a huge crane flapping its wings and advancing threateningly towards them with a parted beak. It was a demon called Baka, and it rushed at Krishna and swallowed him. The other boys were petrified and could do nothing, but the crane spat him out as fast as it had swallowed him, for it felt as if it had swallowed a live coal. So hot had the Lord's body become. Nothing daunted, it tried to pierce him with a sharp beak, but Krishna priced it open and tore it apart as easily as one would split a blade of grass. The boys were filled with wonder and reported all the events of each day 
in the rich home. The elders listened to all these strange tales in growing amazement and marveled at the prowess of this unique child in the midst. How happy were the years that Krishna and Balrama spent in the forest of Vrindavan with their companions. The weather never grew too hot in summer, nor did the grass become dry. The trees were always laden with blossoms, and a gentle breeze blew over the foreheads of the boys. In spring they would play on the swings, or they would play hide-and-seek amongst the trees. Sometimes they would dance like peacocks, or quack like ducks, or leap over the streams like frogs, or make a ring and try to catch Krishna as he darted in between their entwined arms. Even the animals had a special love for him, and the cows lowed happily when he went near them and caressed them. Bedecked with garlands made of wildflowers, he would Im- imitate the stately tread of the swans and the cries of birds. Sometimes, tired after bouts of boxing with his friends, he would rest with his head on a bed of flowers made for him by them. In this way, hiding his identity by the power of his own maya and assuming the form of a common cowherd boy, he, who was in reality the supreme divine, lived a rustic's life amidst the humble rural folk. But whatever he did, he did to perfection, throwing himself heart and soul into the role he was enacting. Thus ends the fifth chapter of Sri Krishna Leela named Bondage of the Boundless. Hariyom Tatsar. And now, and now.
Redua, ya hasta. Redua.